الحمد لله رب العالمين والصلاة والسلام على سيد الأنبياء والمرسلين وعلى آله وصحبه أجمعين السلام عليكم ورحمة الله تعالى وبركاته um, I've taken quite a break from the Surah Al-Kahf series but I decided to push myself and get this stuff going because Ramadan is around the corner and there's lots and lots of work to do in preparation for Ramadan so I wanted to um, complete this obligation before uh, the arrival of the, the month so what we were doing in terms of Surah Al-Kahf, we've done the ayah by ayah study of the entire surah. And we were talking about the overall structure and coherence and nazm of the surah. And those of you who follow my work know that in my own methodology of studying the Qur'an, understanding the, the layout of a surah, the connectedness of a surah, the flow of a surah, and how things, the different subjects in a surah are all coming together. That's a very important part of understanding the message of a surah. Uh, Allah chose to put the ayat in a certain sequence, put the subject matters, combine them together in a certain way. Just like in all things, Allah, like Hamiduddin Farah, he's borrowing his logic. He says, Allah decided to put every bone and every joint in our body in a certain way. Right? That's part of Allah's plan. And when you look at anything that Allah created by way of human engineering, meaning Allah inspired human beings to produce amazing things, right? We We've produced amazing architecture, we've produced amazing technology, we've produced amazing devices. And any one of those devices is about pieces coming together properly. And any one of those pieces out of sync and the device doesn't work, right? And we appreciate things that, that, are, that have a harmony and they have an interconnectedness. In fact, things working together well doesn't just work in the field of science, it's actually even a huge part of the arts. So color schemes that work together, designs that work together, whether you're an architect or an interior designer or a painter or a graphic design artist or a video production person, et cetera, et cetera. There are aesthetics and design and elements that have to work with each other for something to make sense. And then, of course, this plays a role in literature. So in, in literature, if you're writing an essay and the arguments you've made aren't coming together or your paragraph isn't put together well or your chapter isn't put together well, you know, these, these are all things that make a work remarkable and memorable as opposed to something that's not worth our time. So the Quran has this remarkable, you know, aesthetic. It has this remarkable connectedness inside of a surah. And I keep stressing the fact that it's not like other books. It's not like reading a chapter in a in any other book. Uh, it doesn't have the kind of logical progression that you expect from a typical book. It has its own logic, its own structure, its own internal dynamics. And one of, the, one of the ways to think about that, it's not the only way to think about it, but one of the ways to think about it is kind of a symmetrical view of a surah. And that's what I tried to present early in, uh, in this surah. And that is that uh, this surah is made up of four stories and it's made up of uh, several passages. So they're not stories, they're like you can consider them a khutbah, sermon from Allah. Uh, so a sermon followed by a story, followed by a sermon, followed by a story. This is the kind of structure that it has. And if you want to think about how this is all organized, one way of thinking about it is there's an opening to the Surah Al-Kahf and there's a closing to Surah Al-Kahf. Those are both passages. They're not stories. So that's the beginning and the end. And I've already done a lecture on, it's already been recorded, it'll be released soon, on how the opening passage of Surah Al-Kahf and the closing passage of Surah Al-Kahf tie into one another and complete the argument for each other. Now we're working our way in. So th those were the outer extremes. Now we're working our way in. When you work your way in, on the one end is the story of the young people of the cave. That's on the front end when you're coming in. On the back end, when you're working with your way backwards, there are two stories back to back. 
So there's the story of uh, Musa alayhi salam's journey, immediately followed by Dhul Qarnayn's journeys. So there's two back-to-back stories. And I'm going to bunch these two together and correspond them to the story of uh, the, the young people of the cave. Okay. So part of this venture is going to be, and by the way, then we'll keep working our way towards the middle. That's what we're going to do. So we're starting on the extreme ends and we're working our way towards the middle. And when you get to the middle, you actually, interestingly enough, also discover the central idea of the surah. And that's one of the styles of the Qur'an, that the central idea is somehow situated directly in the center and everything converges there and everything emanates from it. One of the most profound examples of that in the Qur'an is Surah An-Nur, where the famous ayat of An-Nur, Allahu Nuru Samawati Wal Ard, in that long Madani Surah are right in the middle. That's the middle two sections of the, of the Surah. And everything else is quite literally illuminated by that middle passage. So uh, something like this is happening here. So there are, there are three tasks when it comes to this inner section now. I'm going to compare the story of the young people of the cave and some of its correspondences with the story of Musa and Khadir. That's what I'm doing today. In the next lecture, I'm going to see Surah the, the Ashab al-Kahf, the, the young people of the cave, and we're going to compare them to the story of Dhul Qarnayn. That'll be our next comparison. And then the most immediate comparison, the story of Musa's journey and Dhul Qarnayn's journey compared to each other. So there's three stories and there are three sets of comparisons. Right? So if you think of them as A, on the one end and B and C on the other. Today we're doing A, B, tomorrow we'll do A, C, and then finally the day after we'll do you know, B, C. Those are the, the comparisons. Then we work our way inside. So today I'm gonna start off with uh, the, the youth of the cave and Musa salam's journey, which are two very distinct stories. This, this uh, discussion will be most productive for you if you are familiar with both stories. So my goal here is not to walk you through the entire story again. There are elements of this story, these two stories that are going to play a role. Now, in the study of, of coherence or connectedness of, inside of a surah, one concept is that of anchors. I like to call it anchors. Anchors means Allah will use a certain kind of unique word, because you know, Quran has very common vocabulary, but sometimes it has unique vocabulary. Like Allah uses a word that He doesn't commonly use, right? So that word kind of sticks out. And then he will use that same word, that unique word, elsewhere in the surah, making a mental connection between two very different parts of a surah. Right? So those are those I like to call anchors, those connections that are made. So and I'm I'm for simplicity in this presentation, I've called it direct word associations, meaning you can clearly see it's the same root origin, it's the same jizr, it's the same origin of the word, it's the same phonetic sounds that are now recurring. So let's look at some of those things that happened in the youth of the cave story versus Musa alayhi salam's journey. So Allah says about the youth of the cave, كَانُوا مِنْ آيَاتِنَا عَجَبًا أَمْ حَسِبْتَ أَنَّ أَصْحَابِ الْكَهْفِ وَالرَّقِيمِ كَانُوا مِنْ آيَاتِنَا عَجَبًا Didn't you assume, didn't you realize that the people of the cave and the inscription were some of our most miraculous signs? And the word strange or unique, or miraculous even, is ajab, right? And then when we get to the Musa story, the only other occurrence of ajab in the surah is what تَخَذَ سَبِيلَهُ فِي الْبَحْرِ عَجَبًا That when uh, his student Yusha woke up, uh, that he realized that the fish had taken a path and it was a strange path that it took. It's interesting also, I, you know, I'm only kind of touching the tip of the iceberg here because there's lots of comparisons, but I want you to just realize something. For each of these comparisons, there's a significance. There's, there's some kind of significance. For instance, in this case, 
the what makes the story of Ashabul Kahf unique is that Allah preserved their life even though we associate that long of a sleep with death. Right? So if somebody's sleeping for 24 hours, it's pretty long. 48 hours, okay. Uh, 72 hours, okay, they're in a coma, they have to be in a drip, they have to be fed. A couple of decades, that's a corpse. A couple of months, that's a corpse. That's, they're dead. So the, what is part of the ajab here, part of the ujub here, something that's strange here, is that where you expect death, there is life. And interestingly, the fish is dead. And it takes a path coming to life. So it actually is a correlation of death and life being in Allah's hands in all kinds of ways. And it's uh, uh, not just the word is associated, the story behind the word is also connected. The, the background is also connected in life and death. Now, the youth of the cave say to each other, Fa'wu ilal kafi, go seek refuge towards the cave, seeking refuge. And they're seeking refuge because they are uh, escaping tyranny. On the other hand, in Musa salam's journey, when Yusha woke up, he said, Oh, you remember if awayna ila sakhrati, when we took refuge towards the boulder? When we took refuge in the boulder? Fa'wu ila awayna ila, same verb. And they're a cave, they're a rock, essentially the same thing. Essentially, the same imagery is repeating itself. And maybe two dimensions of refuge are being highlighted. By the way, interestingly, one is running from something and seeking refuge. And the other is running to something and seeking refuge, right? So there's two different kinds of refuge. And it's also interesting that even if you're not running from persecution, you still need Allah's refuge. And when you are running from persecution, you need Allah's refuge. So there may be other things that are being subtly hinted at in these word connections. Then, of course, very unique that Allah, Allah usually doesn't describe His believers or His servants with words like fitya or fata, like young people. But he goes out of his way to describe the youth of the people of the cave. So he doesn't just call them Ashabul Kahf, he says, Innahum fityatun amanu bi rabbihim. They were young people. And Musa salam had a servant with him who could have been called a khadim, he could have been called his sahib, he could have been called his qareen, he could have been, any word could have been used for his associate, his companion, but Allah chose to use the word youth again. When Musa said to his young servant, so his youth. So perhaps the surah is going out of its way to highlight the importance of paying attention to youth. As was Musa salam, as are the young people of the cave themselves. So there's an extra echoing of the word youth that comes up by the, the time the surah is coming to a close. Of course, the, the people of the cave, they ask Allah for special mercy from him because they don't know where to go when they're running from this tyrant king. They used to go hang out and they found this cave somewhere. Maybe that's our best best bet. It's not like they have a plan to go and live in a cave, right? But in their desperation, they don't know if this is going to work out or not. And they turn to Allah and they say, Rabbana atina milladunka rahmatan. Our master, give us from your special vaults some rahmah, some loving care. We need some rahmah from you. Okay. And then when you come to the story of Musa alayhi salam, Notice the word atina in the story of Ashab al-Kahf, atina, give us, give us rahmah. And on the other side, Musa alayhi salam meets a man who Allah already gave rahmah to. Ataynahu rahmatan min indina. We had given him rahmah from our behalf. Right? So there, and these people, they are looking for refuge. And if you follow the narrations associated with Khadir, he was lying under the sun by the beach, just covered himself in a blanket. And he has rahmah from Allah, you know. 
So when we think of rahmah, we think of a certain kind of, oh, a person's living well, or a person has material good, etc. Right? And the rahmah Allah gave to the youth of the cave is unexpected. You would think rahmah would mean they're safe now, they're going to be in some luxurious place. They're in a cave. So Allah redefined our notions of rahmah. What, it, what does it translate into? You don't get to dictate to Allah what exact rahmah you want from Him. It will come in a package that's designed by Him. Right? And then with Khadir, the way He has been given rahmah, we can't even understand. It's designed by Allah, but it, it, it constitutes rahmah. So it's perhaps broadening our view of what it means to have rahmah from Allah. And it's also maybe helping us understand that maybe a lot of times we cannot possibly understand the rahmah of Allah, but it's always there. Ask Allah for it, and Allah will give it in unexpected ways. Atina rahmatan, atainahu rahmatan. Okay. Now, lana min amrina rashada. The youth of the cave say, Ya Allah, furnish for us uh, in our decision, this thing that this matter of ours, this situation of ours, furnish uprightness for us. Meaning, we want you to facilitate that we stay on the right course. It's a remarkable prayer, actually, because they're not just asking to be safe, like make safety easy for us, furnish ease for us, furnish safety for us. They're asking Allah to furnish goodness, righteousness, uprightness for them. What in the world does that mean? It actually means, Ya Allah, create a situation where I can continue to live a good life that is upright, that is a moral life, that is the kind of life you would want me to live. Make that easy for me. Because the fitna behind us, they'll force convert us into the false religion. They will take us back into a society that has jahiliyyah, that doesn't have any moral principles, that are engaged in all kinds of evil. And if we're in that society, then us, you know, uh, our goodness is going to start, you know, it's, it's going to be forced out of us. It's going to be ripped from us. So they're asking for, you know, when we ask for convenience from Allah, perhaps we're asking for more money. We're asking for better housing. We're asking for a nicer car. We're asking for things. Or we're asking for people around us to stop giving us a hard time or something, you know. We're asking for things to get easier. That's tahiyyit, to furnish, uh, to facilitate, to make things easier. But they say, Ya Allah, prepare for us rashad in our decision. Yeah, facilitate goodness and uprightness. So that's actually, it seems... Safety is not even the ultimate objective. Continuing to stay good, continuing to stay on the right path, that's the ultimate objective for them. And on the flip side, Musa salam is going on this long journey, finally finding his teacher, and says, uh, you know, Same word, Rashad, Rushd. You see the literary connection here? Could you teach me from what you've been taught in terms of Rushd, in terms of uprightness? So Musa's journey's goal is also Rushd. And the, the youth of the cave, their journey's goal is also Rashad. You know, and Allah told him, Musa salam, to go get it from a teacher. And these people don't know where to get it. So they're just going to ask Allah, Ya Allah, open some door to get it for us. Right? So Allah opened the door for them where sleep was their Rashad. And for Musa salam, it's being in those situations that was his Rushd. That was, his, that was the guidance for him. Similarly, the word Amr is uh, being echoed. Hayy'lana min amrina rashada. And on the other hand, la turhiqni min amri usra. In, my, in, in this mission of mine, in this purpose of ours, in this situation of ours, make, make things easy for us. And on the other hand, Musa salam turns to his teacher Khadr and says, don't be harsh with me, when it, on, don't make difficulty on me because of 
you know, uh, in my mission. I'm here, I'm here to learn, so go easy on me. So Amr and Amr are repeated. Then, let me actually, I'll keep going. Sorry, I forgot about you guys. There we go. Now I'll remember both of you. Okay. So, in Surah Al-Kahf, when the story comes to an end, Allah addresses Rasulullah It's tied to the story itself. Hold yourself back. Be patient with yourself. Along with those who are calling on your Rabb night and day. So the Rasulullah is being told to be content and be patient alongside the Sahaba who have no material resources. On the other hand, Musa is being told by his teacher, sabra. You're not going to be able to have sabr with me. Two very different dimensions of sabr are being highlighted. And in both cases, a prophet is being addressed to have sabr. Allah is addressing Rasulullah to have sabr. And Khadr is telling Musa السلام, oh, you're not going to be able to have sabr. This is too much for you. إِنَّكَ لَن تَسْتَطِيعَ مَعِيَ sabra. Okay? I forgot about you again, didn't I? Okay. Uh, I think I'm un uncoordinated now. Okay. So, you remember the famous ayah, Don't you dare say, I'm going to do this and this tomorrow for sure. Illa an Allah except that you say that Allah wills. Right? That Allah wills. And that's the ayah of insha'Allah. And then Allah says, And make mention of your Rabb when you forget. Right? Um, when you forget, remember your Rabb. Now on the other hand, in the story of Musa and Khadir, it's kind of a, an, a literal case study of this concept. Rasul was told, don't ever say, I'm going to do this, this and this tomorrow. Right? And remember. Now in, in the case of Musa salam story in the beginning, he says, I'm not going to stop until I find this rock. Even if I spend years and years and years. Hukuba. What words are missing? about the commitment to do this in the future. The words insha'Allah are missing. And what happens? They pass the place they were supposed to go to. And when he remembered, when his student remembered, he said, وَمَا أَنْسَانِيهُ إِلَّا شَيْطَانُ أَنْ أَذْكُرَهُ No one made me forget except shaitan from remembering it. Shaitan made me forget. Now look at the words. Forgetting, remembering. أَنْسَانِيهُ إِلَّا شَيْطَانُ أَنْ أَذْكُرَهُ So nisyan and dhikr. Forgetting and dhikr. And in the beginning, وَذْكُرْ رَبَّكَ إِذَا نَسِيتَ Remember your master when you forget. So the same concept and then a case study of it highlighted later on. By the way, Musa learns his lesson for not using, not, never forgetting insha'Allah again. So when, uh, when Khadr asks him to come along, he says, سَتَجِدُّنِي إِنشَاءَ صَابِرًا Right, so he applied it. So it's actually, the, the, the teaching was in the, at the end of the story of the cave and then the application was shown the consequence of the of not applying it and then learning the lesson from it was shown in the story of Musa and Khadr. So theory and application in a sense. Now, of course, I, I, I highlighted this before, but I'll, it, it goes to show Allah. So the, the words Allah wills are coming in Surah Ashabul Kahf story. And then at the end, in Musa's story, Satajiduni insha'Allah Sabira. Now, the next part, the, the subtle thematic association. So, so far I showed you Amr and Amr, Rahma and Rahma, Rushd and Rashad, right? So they were like literal, say, Dhikr and Dhikr, Nisyan and Nisyan, 
same exact words are, are, are coming. But now we have to take a thematic connection. Thematic means it's not the same exact word, but the ideas seem to have a relationship with each other, even if the same word is not being used. It's kind of like, because kids are listening to sometimes, cake and sweets. You know, it's not the same word, but there's a mental association with those two things, right? Or race and car. There's, it's not the same thing, but there's an association between them. So there are ideas that are associated with each other in both of these stories. So let's look at some of them. So the idea of spending a long time, a long duration occurs in both. So they stayed in their, in their cave. They stayed 300 some years, right? 300 some years and then more. And Musa السلام, is going to travel and he says, I'm going to spend Hukub. Hukub uh, uh, is uh, 80 years. And Hukub is 80 on top of 80 on top of 80. I'll keep on spending. If, I if it takes me 80 years and then another 80 and then another 80, I'll keep going. So he's talking about centuries, right? He's talking about centuries. And in the story of the cave also, they stayed for centuries. So long durations of time are alluded to in both stories. Then of course, very literally, in the story of the cave, when you cut yourselves off and go in isolation away from them. So the Ashabul Kahaf are in isolation, right? Uh, and they're away from society. And Musa السلام, you know, was, he was the leader of the Israelites. So he was the head of the, the, the community. So he's never alone. But in this journey, he only has one person with him. And he's done i'tizal, even though the word i'tizal is not mentioned. He's, he's Mu'tazil from his nation. He's away from all of them. It's just him and Yusha traveling alone to find this place. Right? So they went into isolation and Musa السلام, says, I, he said to his the only one with him, his young servant, I will keep on going. So this is actually an isolated journey also, which also not literal wording, but thematically ties these two stories together. Then interestingly, even as far as imagery, uh, when the people of the cave went to sleep, there was an opening on the top of the cave, it seems, or the mouth of the cave was rather large. So when the sun would rise and fall, that the sun, the rays would come in, like if you have a home in your, uh, a window in your home, I was going to say a home in your window, but a window in your home, and the sun comes in, Sometimes it comes in and you're like, ah, you, I can't sit on this couch right now because the sun is attacking me here. You, and, and after a certain point, then you can sit there or you want to make sure you have you know, curtains or blinds there or something because it'll, it'll hit you pretty hard, right? Well, it seems that what Allah did is the, the rays of the sun would come approach the young people of the cave and then circumvent them both on sunrise and sunset. In other words, they would never be exposed under the sun. They, they would remain in the shade. While they are in a perfect gap, miraculously right in between. They are in an open space right in between those two passages, okay? Within the rock. And Musa السلام, actually is looking for a place in between two oceans. He's looking for a place in between two oceans. And he finally, it was actually a rock where they took rest. And when they went forward, his student reminded him that was the place where the fish thing happened. So they headed back towards the same rock, which was in between the two oceans. So the idea of the most important spot, the miraculous spot being in between. In, on the one hand, in between two oceans, 
and on the other hand, in between the, the, the rays of the sun, the eastern and the, the, the western sunrise and sunfall, right in between. So this idea of betweenness and finding that central place is highlighted in both stories. Then, of course, food comes up in both stories. Uh, they wake up and they're hungry. So they say, فَلْيَنظُرْ أَيُّهَا أَزْقَطَ aman." Okay, one of you, take this money. Go find out what's the best food we can get. Azkata aman also means what's the halalist food we can have. What's the most pure food we can get. And Musa salam is traveling and he gets tired. And when he gets tired, he says, Atina ghada'ana, bring us our food. لَقَدْ لَقِينَ مِنْ سَفَرِنَا هَذَا نَصَبًا We've been exhausted by this journey. So they're in pursuit of food, he's in pursuit of food. Interestingly, I didn't add this here, but thematically, it is the pursuit of food that led them to be discovered. So the discovery happens because of the pursuit of food. And in the story of Musa salam, the discovery of Khadr happens because of the pursuit of food. It is what they realized, what they missed, is why they went back to where they went. So there's another interesting thematic tie-in between the two. Another a contrast this time. When they made dua to Allah as they're heading towards the cave, they talked about how they want Allah to make comfort for them, ease for them, relaxation for them. And they did. They, their story is about sleep and relaxation. And on the other hand, Musa alayhi story is about a journey and exhaustion. So nasaba. So on the one hand, mirfaqa, which means comfort, ease, relaxation, reclining. And on the other, we have been exhausted by our journey. SubhanAllah, sometimes Allah will test or the, the miracle Allah will give to His servants is comfort and the other time the miracle Allah will give to His servants is exhaustion. It is because of exhaustion that the story continues. Had they not been exhausted and not gotten hungry, we wouldn't have get getting the, the rest of the chapters of what happens with Musa salam would not be happening, right? So Allah will, this is again, it's manifesting the same original idea. Remember I told you, Rahmah doesn't come in the package we expect. Right, so he can package it as comfort and he can package it as exhaustion. That's up to him. We don't decide how Allah delivers his rahmah. This is one of my favorite correspondences in, in these two surahs. Allah says, um, it, you know, towards the conclusion, Man woman falan murshida. I hope I'm, I do a good job explaining this to you guys. It's, it's really, I found it really powerful. So Allah says, at the end of Surah Al-Kahf's uh, Al story, he says, whoever Allah guides, then that's the person that's committed to guidance to begin with. And whoever Allah decides to allow to be misled, uh, then you will not find someone to protect over them, waliyan, and to set them to the right course, murshidan. So if Allah decides to let you stay in misguidance, two things you will not get, a wali and a murshid. A wali and murshidan. Now what is wali and murshidan again? Someone protective over you and someone who course corrects you. Now interestingly, the first wali murshid every one of us has in our life is our parents. They're protective over us and they set us to the right course. If you're misbehaving, they correct your misbehavior. If you're making a mess, they ask you to clean up your mess. If you're missing your prayers, they tell you to make your prayer. If you're not, if you're not, if you didn't make wudu, they ask you to fix your wudu and make it properly. They're your wali and they're your murshid. They're your first ones, right? And in their case, of course, in Ashab al-Kahf's case, you know, they don't have parental guidance. They have parental misguidance, right? <laughs> Their parents aren't guided. So Allah says, and whoever Allah decides to guide, then they're the ones who commit the guidance themselves. 
And if Allah allows somebody to be misguided, it doesn't matter if their parents are good or not. It doesn't matter if they have wali murshid, any, any other wali murshid. They could be in the best environment. But Allah decides that these people don't want to commit to guidance, so they don't deserve it. You know what this is telling us? It's a profound philosophical reality. Guidance is not the result of your environment. Guidance is the result of your commitment. It's not the result of your environment. Ibrahim could be in a hostile environment and he's guided. Ashab al-Kahf in an extremely hostile environment and they're not prophets and they're guided. And the Israelites were in the company of prophets every single generation and yet they weren't guided. Right? So you can be in a guided environment and not have guidance. And you can be in a misguided environment and you can have guidance. The example of this Allah gives elsewhere in Makkah Quran. Allah says that uh, you know, so he compares guidance to different phenomena. So one of the phenomena is honey, or not honey, milk, milk. And he says it comes bimbaini farthin wa damin. So the the body of the animal has feces in it, it has urine in it, it has filth in it, and it has blood in it. And what's coming out of the udder is pure milk, right? So Allah says, look at Allah's miracle that between all of the filth, something pure is coming out. And in the same passage, he gives the example of uh, grapes. Grapes are pure, it's a fruit. It's an organic thing. It's, na it's naturally grown. It's a sweetness created by Allah. But you can take pure grapes and squeeze them and you can make what with them? You can make wine with them. So look at the analogy. Something that is internally impure, purity is coming out from it. That's the example of milk. And something that's inherently pure, impurity is coming out of it. That's the grape. And this is Allah's way of describing, through this analogy, one of the implications of it is guidance. People can be in a filthy environment. And when their hearts are pure, it's like the milk coming out of the animal. They could survive the blood and the feces and come out pure, pure and clean. Not only are they pure and clean, they became a source of guidance and replenishment for others. They can become that. So you're not a product only of your environment. On the other hand, you could be in a, a, a natural, holistic, you know, fitri environment, what you call Islamic environment, a moral environment, and yet you can take all of the goodness around you and you can manipulate it and squeeze it and ferment it into wine. You can turn it into haram. That can happen. So what happens on the one hand, these young people are in bad company and they still have guidance. And then on the flip side, there's a story of a young boy who has the best parents. So much so that those parents get divine help from Allah. And yet he will not take guidance. In fact, he will be a tyrant against them. He will be a tyrant against them. And those parents, by the way, they are his wali and his murshid. Aren't they? Because the parents are I, fundamentally wali and murshid. So what's happening in Musa story? فَخَشِينَ أَنْ يُرْهِقَّهُمَا طُغْيَانًا وَكُفْرًا So it's as if this ayah مَنْ يَهْدِ اللَّهُ فَهُوَ الْمُهْتَدْ وَمَنْ يُضْلِلْ فَلَنْ تَجِدَ لَهُ وَلِيًا مُرْشِدًا A case study of مَنْ يَهْدِ اللَّهُ فَهُوَ الْمُهْتَدْ is Ashabu Al-Kahf, the young Ashabu Al-Kahf. And a case study of مَنْ يُضْلِلْ فَلَنْ تَجِدَ لَهُ وَلِيًا مُرْشِدًا is the young boy that's going to get described in the story of uh, Musa and Khadr right? So it's a really cool correlation between the two, very profound. Now, وَتَحْسَبُهُمْ أَيْقَاظًا وَهُمْ رُقُودٌ You will think that they're awake. 
Allah says about the people of the cave, you will think that they're awake. But what's actually happening? They're deep asleep. They're long. So let's draw a conclusion from that. It is reality is not what it appears to be. Reality is not what it appears to be. If somebody stumbled upon the cave, they will think they're sitting up alert. They're awake. Right? But that's not the reality of it. So there's a scene, but there's an unseen reality. Wahum Rukut. Okay. In Musa salam's journey, he asks, Did you just damage the ship to drown its people? Then he asks, Did you kill a person, an innocent person, without any crime? Then he says, had you wanted, we could have been paid for building this wall. Why? Because he didn't realize that reality is not what it appears. So a correspondence between these two stories is actually, reality is not how it all appears. You cannot judge entirely by what was caught on film, what you saw or what you heard or what you even experienced. Musa didn't just hear something. Or watch something. It happened in front of him. He experienced it. And yet he does not have a grasp of what's really going on in terms of reality. Reality is deeper than that. Right? So this is a profound undertone that connects both of these surahs or these stories together. Then of course building. Uh, I love this one too. This is very philosophical. Build a building over them. You know what that means in simple terms? Build a monument. So people remember this miraculous incident. People remember these seven saints, these seven sleepers, as they have been remembered, as churches have been commemorated, and this Ubnu alayhim bunyana historically happened. There were churches commemorating the seven sleepers of the cave. So there were buildings built over them, you know? And all of this is what? A way of recording history. We don't want their story to be lost. We want that story to be treasured. That's the idea of building monuments, isn't it? Now. On the flip side, Musa is also building something. He's building a wall along with Khadr. And when they build the wall, we find out that the wall was not built to remember someone. The wall was built to help forget that father and his children so nobody pays attention to them. Some parts of history, human beings really want to remember. And Allah allows that to be remembered and actually even though they tried to build monuments, to record the history. Look at what happened. They built these monuments and they built these churches in the name of Sahabul Kahf and they turned them into saints of Christianity. They turned them into proof that Christ is Lord. And Allah revealed in the Quran the corrected story. Allah revealed that that's not what these young people were. They were not a reinforcement of the Christian creed. This is not who they were at all. This is why he says, نَحْنُ نَقُصُّ عَلَيْكَ نَبَأَهُمْ بِالْحَقِّ we're the ones that are going to tell you what really happened with them. Because you, you try to record and preserve and commemorate you know, their history by monument, by songs, by hymns, by buildings, and you still corrupted it. And yet on the other hand, there's a wall, there's no name on it, there's no title ownership, and yet the people who were supposed to be preserved by it, they, they got it. And so Allah sometimes protects people by making them forgotten. By making them forgotten, subhanAllah. Some parts of history, Allah chooses for us to remember. Some parts of history, Allah deliberately omits. He, he doesn't want us to know. For centuries, people didn't know what the Ashabul Kahf really were about. They didn't know. And then Allah decided to reveal the truth. Nobody would have known about this wall and about these young kids and this history that happened in the world had Allah not given it to us. Okay?
I love this one too. Oh my God. Sarf students, right? Lutf in Arabic is when if, if you have like if you spray something on a cloth and a few fibers of that or few droplets come through the cloth very subtle, barely or the, you know, the stitching if you look very closely you can find a grain in there it's so barely visible, barely noticeable until you take a very, very close look looking at something very delicate, very closely that's actually called lutf one of Allah's names is al-latif al-latif what that means is Allah is doing something and you barely notice that it's Allah doing it at, at further glance, it doesn't look like it's a lie at all. It looks like people are doing it. And you take a really close examined look and you realize it's a lie at work. Yusuf story, so much is going on, right? And Allah describes one of his names, Latifun Limayasha, Latif, in the story of Yusuf. So nobody would think Allah's plan is to get him thrown in a well, or a child to be sold into slavery is God's plan. Or somebody being falsely accused and thrown in a jail cell is God's plan, right? But subtly, in a very delicate way that Allah is weaving for us. And if Allah didn't weave that for us, we wouldn't know. We wouldn't know that that's actually Allah. It just looks like injustice, straightforward. Father separated from son, innocent person thrown in jail. That's what it looks like, you know. A false accuser getting away with it, you know. That's, that's all it looks like. But Allah is at play. At work, and that that Allah's role in that is called latif. Now, this word is also used for human beings, talatafa, for someone to act very subtly, very undetectedly. This is the word that the young people of the cave used when they gave one of their guys money to go get food, because they were wanted, right? So go and kind of be inconspicuous, be incognito, hide away. You know, in RPG video games, if there are games about the enemy detecting you, they have these little triangle icons on top of the enemy that go from neutral to yellow to red and that means now the enemy is alerted of your presence so you weren't latif enough you weren't subtle or hidden you know enough you weren't ninja enough <laughs> right so waliyatalattaf is them saying hey don't don't draw attention to yourself blend in like you're invisible when you go and get that food okay now this is human beings doing their best to not be noticed to be invisible, to their, for their role to be invisible. But did that attempt succeed or fail? Now can you imagine somebody wearing clothes from 300 years ago, holding coins in a bag that nobody uses anymore, and they're walking around like, trying to blend in? You know, and then they speak, they speak language from 300 years ago, pretty much hoping that nobody will notice. Like they'll become the, the center of the entire town's attention, right? The irony of it. On the flip side, Khadir is taking Musa salam on a journey. And he's doing some crazy things. He's breaking a boat, he's killing a kid, he's going a, like starving in a town and then starts randomly building a wall. He's just doing these wild things. And at the end of it all, he describes how, he doesn't use the word Latif for Allah, but essentially he says it without saying it. Right? How does he say it? Rahmatan min rabbik. That was all rahma from your Rabb. I didn't do it on my own. That was Allah instructing me to do it. All of that. But is the Allah's role was too latif for it to be observed or to be discerned by Musa alayhi salam. 
in those cases, right? So human attempts at lutf and Allah's lutf contrasted between the two stories. Oh, I, yeah, I keep forgetting you guys. Okay. I thought we did this one. We'll spend enough sec. Yeah, we did. Okay. Now, the young people of the cave wake up and they're like, how long were we sleeping? Oh, it must have been a day. No, nah, not even a whole day. And then quickly they realize there's no way for us to know. We don't have a watch. We don't have a clock. We don't have a calendar. There's nobody that came from the outside to tell us what time it is and what day it is and what week it is. So, Rabbukum a'lamu bima labithum. No need to concern yourself over things that only Allah knows. Allah knows how long you said, who cares? All that matters is we're hungry. Like somebody woke up among them and maybe said, man, I feel like I haven't eaten for centuries. <laughs> that may actually be true, right? Man, I haven't eaten for like oh, 300 years. You know? Doesn't matter how long you didn't eat, let's just go get some food. Don't worry about how long you were sleeping. Okay. On the other hand, Musa alayhi salam is being given advice by his teacher. How can you be patient over something that you don't have full news of? We have two very different attitudes. One attitude is if you don't know, let it go. There's no way for you to know. But then there are some situations where human nature says, I just need to know why did Allah do this? Why did this happen? Can Allah just give me the source code? If you could just tell me why this happened, then it would be so much easier for me to believe in him. You know, like, I mean, of all the things he could have done, why did he do that? And the, you should remember the words of Khadir when you, when you think like that. How are you going to have sabr over something you can't have any news of? You can't encircle it. You're not going to be made privy to that. Musa was given a glimpse of what happened at the end. And he couldn't bear some things. So on the one hand, Allah is actually empathizing with you and me when we start questioning why did this happen and why did that happen. But on the other hand, it's actually comforting to know Rabbukum A'lamu. Your master knows. That's enough. You don't have to have it all figured out. You don't have to know the reason, uh, Allah's plan. You know, there's a, there's a discontent with, you know, I know Allah did this, this, and this in my life, but if I just knew why He did it, Right? And then people, obviously Allah is not going to reveal to you why He did it. You're not going to get an email from the Divine that in, or a push notification, this is why this happened to you. Now you know what some people do? They say, you know what? I figured out why He did it. He must have done this because He wanted me to do this, 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 this. Why do you have to figure out Allah's plan? And why do you have to divine what He meant to do with you? This is what He wanted. Really? In philosophy, they call this going inside the mind of God. You have no access. You have, وَمَا كَانَ اللَّهُ لِيُطْلِعَكُمْ عَلَى الْغَيْبِ Chill out. You know, Allah says, Allah doesn't owe you. Allah is not going to be one to you, one to inform you of what's happening in the unseen. So don't try to keep hypothesizing what Allah's intentions could have been. There's no way for you to know. There's no way. And that's actually the point being taught in Musa alayhi journey. If you're suffering from that kind of impatience, then learn from that story. Take that lesson from that story. And may Allah help all of us with our sabr. Uh, another interesting, subtle contrast. 
Don't let anybody notice, get wind of your presence. Don't let anybody realize that you guys are hiding out here. So even when you come back, don't come back so directly. Make sure you're not followed, you know, being conspicuous. We talked about that before. So their entire effort is to not be noticed. That's their effort. Musa alayhi salam is going to a town and their entire effort is, please somebody notice us. We just need some food. And nobody wants to notice them. Right? There, Allah will try some of his believers and he will make it impossible for them to be invisible. Their trial will be, it is impossible for them to be invisible. And other believers he will try by making it impossible for them to be noticed. Their trial will be, they get ignored. <laughs> the flip side. And nobody will even act like they even exist. Can you imagine the most honored prophet of Allah, Musa alayhi spoke to Allah directly, spoke to Allah directly. And some guy in some village opened the door to Musa and said, get out of here. I can't just imagine that for a moment. Musa as like, food, get out of here. Shoo. Subhanallah. Sometimes Allah will try by making you ignored. Even if you are a maqab, like even if he's a Musa salam, Allah can make him ignored. And if you are just some kids, that it's easy for kids to not be the center of attention. Just there's just some youth, and they can become the center of attention when Allah decides. Subhanallah. And in the age where attention has become almost a religion by itself, right? Not getting enough attention becomes a cause for for a person to be depressed. To feel like they're worthless because they're not getting enough attention, they're not getting enough views, they're not getting enough digital hearts and smiley faces and up thumbs pointed upwards. Clearly an indication of your worth as a human being. When you're not getting those, how can there be any purpose in your life? And in, in an era of attention being a god by itself, and ilah besides Allah, unfortunately, maybe it's good for us to remember that sometimes Allah tests people by giving them too much attention. And sometimes Allah tests people by removing all attention from them. You know, and it has nothing to do with what, what their worth is. Musa alayhi salam is worth incredible amounts. He is the most mentioned prophet in the Quran. And he's not getting the attention for even one, one neighbor, one, one you know, villager in a, in a no-name town. SubhanAllah. Money and food. Okay, here's some money. Go fetch some food for us. On the other hand, they try to get food and they don't have money. So the people in the cave, they have money and they're trying to acquire food. Another interesting comparison contrast, they have also tried to get food. And since they didn't get food, they tried to do some work so they can get paid. Maybe they can go over to the next village and use the gold coins or silver coins or whatever they were going to earn and maybe get themselves some food. إِنْ يَظْهَرُوا عَلَيْكُمْ يَرْجُمُوكُمْ أَوْ يُعِيدُوكُمْ فِي مِلَّتِهِمْ The youth of the cave said, listen, you need to take being hidden so seriously because if they find out who you guys are, what are they going to do? They're going to stone you to death. The order has been given, you are to be executed. And if not, they will assimilate you back into their own religion. They will force you back into the pagan religion. So they are under threat of persecution, right? And on the other hand, Musa alayhi salam's story is also the threat of persecution. 
Behind them was a king who was seizing all ships. Right? So these are powerless against the larger oppression, the larger forces. These young people were powerless against the king that is coming after them. Right? And what did Allah do? Allah saved these young people from being caught. And by the time they were caught, they were no longer under hostile threat. And Allah saved, so Allah removed them from all harm, worldly and otherworldly. And on the other hand, Allah allowed for those young people's ship to be damaged so they could survive. Sometimes Allah will protect you by protecting you physically in the present and the future. Sometimes Allah will protect you physically in the future by allowing you to come into harm's way in the present. The, Allah's plan has different variations. It's not one kind of plan. He has one kind of plan for the people of the cave, another for the young people that were fishermen or the people that were fishermen in the story of Musa alayhi salam. فَلَا تُمَارِ فِيهِمْ إِلَّا مِرَاءً ظَاهِرًا وَلَا تَسْتَفْتِ فِيهِمْ مِنْهُمْ أَحَدًا Don't ask questions about them. Don't ask useless questions about them. Allah is guiding what kinds of questions should you ask and should you not ask. How many were they? How many exact years did they live? What village did they live in? What food did they get? Did they go to McDonald's? What did they, what did they order? Did they have ketchup back then? These are not questions you need to worry about. You don't need to argue about that. You don't need to get caught in, you know, and don't argue except about them except in things that have been made clear. And don't seek out other information from other people just, just to add some nice spice to the story. Don't do that. Musa salam goes on a journey and his teacher tells him, La tas'alni an shay. Don't you ask me about anything until I say so. In both cases, we're actually learning that when Allah decides, He wants you to shut up and not ask questions. He wants you to ask questions about what you're being told. Ask explanation about what you've been taught. Don't let your mind go to things that He didn't talk about. And you want to know all those things. You know, like I keep saying when I describe these stories, Muslim curiosity isn't about what Allah said. It's always about what Allah didn't say. All the time. So, you know, the young people, so Allah said there's three and four and five and six, seven and eight. Um, how many were there though? Do we know how many there were? Why do you want to know? I don't know, just, you know, because Allah didn't say, so I just... Really want Allah to say, because if He said it, it would really help me on Judgment Day. You know, all these these two gardeners that in Surah Al-Kahf. Where's this garden? Is this in New Jersey? Is this uh, California? Where where's this garden? He didn't say. That's why I really want to know, because he didn't say. Zulkarnain. Is it Alexander the Great? Is yeah, Yujan Majur the Great Wall of China? Can we just know? Because if you could just know, then it would just. It's helped me so much with my iman. Would it? I don't know. We want to be obsessed with all the things Allah didn't ask us about. And there's even a more strict guideline placed on Musa Ali Things that are happening in front of him, don't ask questions. Right now is not the time to ask questions. But in the in the Quran's case, we're not given that strict guideline like guidance or that restriction like Musa Ali But our questions have been given direction. There is such a thing as an irrelevant question. There is such a thing as a problematic question. So this is a powerful teaching contrasting the two. Now last thing, a thematic comparison and contrast. You'd think it would never end. It's going to end. It's going to end. A thematic comparison and contrast. These are some larger ideas that emerge from both stories that we can perhaps look in cor correlation. 
So both of them are about um, divine intervention. So of course, the fact that these young people were able to find a cave that the army couldn't find, the fact that they could be hidden away from the sun's rays, the fact that they could sleep for several centuries, all of that is divine intervention. And it's obvious that it's divine intervention. It became obvious to everyone when they uh, emerged, right? And on the other hand, in Musa's story, we learn there are everyday things happening. A ship is getting damaged, a wall is being built, a child is being killed. These are things that happen in the news, right? And so you can see the, the Allah's involvement in Ashabul Kahf, but you don't necessarily see Allah's involvement when you hear news like that, right? So there's the invisible divine hand, but it's always there. There's a plan always there. Our problem is we want everything to be a divine intervention like Ashabul Kahf. And we become uneasy when we don't see that direct divine miraculous intervention and say, how come Allah is not doing something about this, this, and this on our terms? How come not every story looks like Ashabul Kahf? How come so many stories look like Musa's journey? That's, that becomes our problem. So Allah is balancing the two. Sometimes He does intervene in miraculous divine ways. Other times He doesn't. Other times He lets things be and you have to see the delicate hand of Allah at play. Of course, by time, they went for a day and it turned into centuries. And Musa started out saying, I'm going to spend centuries looking if I have to. And it happened the same day. They just ended up finding it. They took a nap, woke up, got hungry, found the place. Right? So all of it happens in rapid succession. So sometimes what we think will happen quickly, Allah can extend. And sometimes things that we want to happen, we think it's going to happen way years down the line, can happen today. Can happen. So time and timetables are in the control of Allah. And He decides them for His slaves. We can have our projections. We can have our estimates. But at the end of the day, Allah can make something happen that we thought impossible, for better or for worse, on His own terms. And we are dependent entirely on Him. This is actually reinforcing the idea of وَلَا تَقُولَنَّ Don't say something, I'm going to do this and this tomorrow. The world around you could change in one day. It could change the entire reality of your, your life in a day, in an hour, in a minute. In a minute. Everything can change. So what tomorrow? So... That's another very powerful one. Then, um, th this is the, the, there's a timeless, there's some things about Allah that He does for His slaves in this world that is timeless. Those that turn to Him sincerely, Allah protects their deen and their guidance. That's a guarantee from Allah. Man And yahdillahu man there are multiple indications in the Qur'an that if you and I commit ourselves to guidance, there's no way Allah will leave us misguided. It, you could be surrounded by shirk, kufr, jahiliyyah, persecution. Allah will make the sun bend around your convenience to keep you guided. He will do that for you. All He needs from you is a commitment to guidance. But when Allah guides His slaves, that doesn't mean that, that means he preserves their deen, right? But in the story of Musa salam, there are also innocent people whose dunya was not preserved. Their livelihood was not preserved. At least temporarily it wasn't preserved. People's, a, a, a family's child was not preserved. Young kids could not access their treasure for a long time. So we, yeah, the, the good ending of the story is by the time they got to adulthood, they could have access to those funds. But what about all the time before then? Sometimes 
when Allah will preserve the deen of his slaves no matter what. But that doesn't mean that Allah preserves the dunya of his slaves. That is Allah's plan. How he brings ups and downs in, in the worldly sense of our lives. One of the most amazing contrasts in these stories is these young people were going out and teaching their entire nation. And to this day, they are teachers. We learn from them. Right? So young people, you don't expect young people to be the sources of wisdom. Young people, we think of them as people who need wisdom, who seek wisdom. Right? And they become the wise that we still learn from today. Old men in their 80s and 90s are reciting Surah Al-Kahf and learning from the wisdom of young men. Right? Isn't that beautiful in our religion? That Allah removed age as a factor of who can give guidance. And on the other side, you have one of the most senior prophets in all of Islam, Musa salam, and he's playing the role of what? A student. A student. The young have become teachers, and the old have become a student. SubhanAllah. It's the, it's the universal like, power of guidance and learning, the role we have towards, the, the attitude we have towards learning in our religion that's been taught by this. Anyway, uh, this is, I think this is the last, no, there's a couple more. Okay. So the cave became a divine sanctuary. What that means is, you know, we think of some places as holy places where miracles happen. People turn them into sanctuaries and temples and things like that, right? So you have, like, uh, in different religions, you have temples. Muslims, by the way, sometimes we, of course, the, the, the haramain are sacred places to us, right? But you know what we do? We, associate, we end up doing shirk in those places too. Like people are going there and cutting a piece of the ghilaf of the Kaaba and bringing it home and rubbing their face on it and stuff. Like, what are you doing? What, what are you doing? This, this, <laughs> that's, this is, that's, the, that's the mentality that Islam came to destroy. The, to, to, to take objects and make them sacred. That's what Islam came to get rid of. You know, there are people that take their ihram off and they start hugging the, the Maqam Ibrahim little... <laughs> like, what are you doing? Why are you doing this? You know, or elbowing each other in the face to kiss Hajar Aswad and stuff. But you know what? Allah took a no-name cave. We, nobody knows where this is. The uh, Turkish people say we found it. But they find, I don't know why. They, they end up finding everything. They've got the Ark of Nuh, they've got the hair of the Prophet. Everything happened in Turkey. I think Adam is there, and then like Ashab al Kahaf are there. Dulkar Nain's probably in Istanbul. I don't know. Like there's, <laughs> everything happens in one place. Right? Or Jordan, or like, there's a, there's a couple of places where like, this is where everything happened. How do you know? Allah wanted some places to be completely unknown. Now, you know, for, for people in different religions, like the, the Vatican is sacred. Right? It's sacred land. It's hallowed land. And here you have an unmarked cave that became the, the, the place of a timeless miracle of Allah. What does that mean? That Allah, even though there are places in this world that are mashair, right? Allah mentions that, right? So the, the haramain are mashair, right? They are places that bring about feelings of sacredness. Muzdalifa, Arafa, these are sacred places. But actually, there are many other sacred places where sacred things have happened, and Allah did not want them to be known. And you know what that means? Any place could be sacred, miracles can happen anywhere. They don't have to be limited to a place. And the people that found the young people of the cave didn't understand that. That's why they started arguing, we should build a masjid here. We should make this a sacred place. We should make this a sacred place. The point wasn't the place is sacred. 
the point. It's not like the miracle happened here. That's that's why I'm going to come here because I have sleep apnea. So I'm going to go and make dua at this cave so my sleep issues get solved. That wasn't the point. The point was Allah helps His slaves no matter what their condition. Then the rock, the unknown rock, like we think about the, that's a divine sanctuary. I said here divine seminary. Musa is going to learn aspects of his deen. He's going to learn some things about Allah he doesn't know, even though he's been taught the Torah. And what university does he go to? What remarkable center of learning does he go to? An unnamed rock between two oceans. Meaning an obscure, unnamed man that nobody seems to have ever heard of. Right? That we still argue about who that really is. What Allah is telling us is, when he decides to give knowledge, and when he decides to protect a place, meaning when he decides to bless, either turn a place into a sanctuary, or turn a person into a seminary, that's up to Allah. They don't have to come from the conventional places that we associate. You know, the conventional institutions that we associate. One of the greatest teachers in history got taught by an unnamed man. An unknown man. SubhanAllah. Musa alayhi salam, teacher in the Quran. So much of our the Prophet's inspiration comes from Musa alayhi salam. And he's getting taught by somebody who's just Abdul min ibadina. In a place that nobody even knows. You can't even find it. You know? So this is a profound, again, there, there, are, there are aspects in the story that highlight our philosophy towards learning. Learning is not a place. Sacredness is not necessarily just a place. Learning is, is a gift from Allah and He can give it to whoever He wants. And of course, I, I already mentioned this to you, a masjid was built to commemorate history and a wall was built to hide the history of that real family, right? Um, I think this is the last one, yeah. The, the quest for Rashad. So I told you both of those quests are for Rashad. Rashada. And on the other hand, um, you know, The contrast is one is running from something and one is running to something. One is running to something. When they're running from evil, they're looking for guidance. And the other is running towards knowledge and looking for guidance. You know what that is? Perhaps the two sides of the same coin. For every believer, if we want to live an upright life, we need to get away from evil. And we have to run towards learning deeper, getting to know Allah better. We have, to prof- we have to deepen our knowledge of Allah. We have to deepen our knowledge of our deen. And we have to get away from an evil environment. And those two things go hand in hand. The more you get away from evil, the more Allah will bring people in your path that can help you learn your deen better. The more you start pulling yourself towards evil, even if people of deen can be accessed, you will no longer care to access them. You'll be there, but you don't have any value for them. Because you're being sucked into the wrong thing. So these are some really interesting comparisons, contrasts, correlations that emerge between the story of the cave, Ashab al-Kahf, and Musa al-Sam. Again, I said this is not exhaustive. It's just kind of a, a cursory look. But inshallah, this is a starting point. Others will come and add so much more to it. Barakallahu li wa lakum fil Qur'an al-Hakim. Wa nafa'ani wa iyaakum al-ayati wa dhikr al-Hakim. Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh.